I'm Danielle Houston. I'm the host of this podcast, The Checkup. I'm also a health and welfare advisor at Locked In Companies. Today's episode is another in the series that lets you meet some of our experts up close and personal to hear what we're doing that is different, that is innovative, and that drives meaningful change to the dollars that you spend as an employer on your benefit plan. Today, I am excited to welcome Dr. Christine Hale. She is our vice president of clinical consulting, and I am going to refer to her bio because I just love to honor the experience and the background of people that we have coming here to join us. She serves as the medical director and lead strategist for the clinical consulting team here. She's known as an innovator, a collaborator, and a change agent. She's particularly passionate about using data and creative solutions to reduce waste and improve the cost effectiveness in healthcare. She's going to tell us some great stories today about how her and her team are doing just that. She completed her MBA in 2005. She joined McKinsey and Company as a consultant there first, and she did spend a little time here in Seattle, so she loves the Pacific Northwest. She worked with hospitals and health systems during that time across the country and internationally. She is often sought to facilitate in situations where building physician and administration alignment is key, and she has been a great speaker on the circuit around Lockton and around you know, our collective community as well. Christine, I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you. It's a delight to be here with you. Well, and you're going to help us really start to expand and build on this message of what Lockton is doing that is different and how we can help employers with this healthcare spend. Because you've got some examples here today, too, of really how how the spend, I mean, I, can we say it's out of control? I think it's pretty fair. <laughs> if it's not there already, that's where it's headed for sure. Yeah, so action is important. So let's start with just the first question here. What are the problems that you and your team are solving? Yeah, well, Danielle, you know, it really comes down to the fact that for a solid decade or two, we as a healthcare industry have been doing a lot of great work in the space of wellness population health and disease management, which are amazing programs and services, uh, you know, that are part of a collective benefit. But there is this niche of patients who are very complex, often have, you know, very rare, potentially genetic conditions, conditions that tend to manifest younger in age, um, either as children or young adults. And they are exceptionally costly and not well addressed by strategies that would be used for some of these other conditions like heart disease and stroke and diabetes. And so, you know, our employer clients were just getting rising expenses, not only rising, but frankly, incredibly volatile. So one year they may have great claims experience and the next year they may get triplets with a genetic disorder that are running a million dollars a year. And, you know, it just really has created this burning platform, if you will, to try to figure out how it is that we can take costs out of the system, not just figure out how to finance the risk better. 
You know, when, when you talk about these volatile claims, I think back to when I first started in this industry, it was the late nineties, million dollar claims were few and far between. In the early part of my career, I maybe saw two. And fast forward today, million dollar claims are very commonplace. And to your point, it isn't always something that we can plan or necessarily predict, but I mean, are, is you, or I'm sorry, I'll back that up a second. Are you in your team, are you able to do some predictive kinds of work in that space? That is a great question. Um, and, and you're right. Sometimes you just can't see them coming. Triplet preemies fall in your lap and, you know, it's pretty hard to know that that's happening. Um, that said, there are some things that we can and do look for, um, you know, and if I back up one bit, so the biggest two flavors that we see driving these mega claims are either what I would call lightning strikes that tend to end up with big inpatient admissions or overnight stays. So that's going to be some of those complex babies, um, it could be some trauma, um, it could be a bloodstream infection, just something that, you know, would be maybe harder to predict. Um, and then there are specialty pharmacy drugs, and these ones we actually can predict uh, fairly well. So specialty pharmacy is probably the number one driver, or certainly will be soon, of you know, increases in costs of claims at the high end of the spectrum. And the real challenge with specialty pharmacy is, you know, even though we have insurance, which we call stop-loss insurance, to protect us against the lightning strike cases, on the other hand, these therapies, like specialty pharmacy, they're going to continue on and on and on and on. And as I mentioned, it may be a patient starting shortly after birth or even, you know, in young adulthood, who's going to probably stay on these medicines for the rest of their life, or at least until a cure is found. And that means that, you know, suddenly the insurance company is not going to cover the claim anymore. They, they may cover for the first couple of years. And then at some point, they're going to say, you know what, this is known risk. And we're here to cover unknown risk. And so we'll still give you insurance for everyone else, but we're either going to not insure that person or we're going to give them a much higher deductible, um, something we call a laser. So, you know, it's really helpful for us to understand, A, you know, how to fix those, but B, how to counsel employers on what's coming. And so one of our great products that we have is we have a specialty pharmacy pipeline uh, predictor where we take and in conjunction with the pharmacy colleagues can look at what is the disease burden? Are there certain genetic conditions present in the employer's population, for example? Um, and then what's in the FDA pipeline for possible approval? And we can match those two things up and then talk to our experts about what's the likely uptake of this new drug within that patient population so that we can try to give a, a lens and to, okay, well, you just heard that there's a $2 million gene therapy coming out. Should you be concerned or not? Do you have anyone that has that condition? Um, and so that's where one where, place where we're trying to help with the predicting. The other is, you know, really the, the essence of what we do and the reason that this approach is um, different and complementary to things like disease management is for this narrow niche of half a percent of claimants we're literally diving into every detail of their claims experience. So understanding, you know, do they have the right diagnosis and the right treatment? 
And is it building coded properly and all of those things? And as part of doing that, we can then understand enough about that person's course. And each one of these patients, by definition, has their own unique um, circumstances and experiences. And so we get in and we understand all the details, and then we can help employers understand what's likely to transpire. Great example, uh, we were doing a review recently on a four-year-old child, and they have been running about a million dollars a year. Um, had a complex heart condition. And our team called me and said, can you take a look at the case and let the employer know, do we think it's going to continue? And I said, actually, that patient just had the third part of a three-part heart repair. So going forward, they actually, it looks like they're doing great and we should not expect really any other surgeries, at least not in the near future. And so it definitely helps with that, you know, understanding are they at the beginning of the course of therapy, at the end, have they had a complication or are they pretty much behaving as we would expect? Um, and all of that helps with some of that forward-looking planning piece. And I love, we have some stories, some examples that we framed it in our outline today as giving patients hope again, because, you know, these numbers are gigantic. Obviously they represent a lot of spend for employers. It also represents a lot of spend for the patient, the member. And so really highlighting the importance of engaging and intervening is really critical. Um, would you share the story? Uh, there was a home infusion example that we talked about in prep. Yes, I'd be happy to. And this goes back to that point of each of these patients are individual people. Um, and at this level of complexity, as you can imagine, anything, there are so many ways that they can get derailed from getting the care that they need. Um, in this particular instance, uh, we were working on what we would call a site of care implementation. So one of the things about these very, very costly specialty drugs is if they're infused in a hospital infusion center, um, they often have quite a significant markup option. And if we can get them transitioned to the comfort and safety of their own home, we can typically save 80 to 90%, which in this case meant $850,000 a year ongoing for this medication. 99% um, of patients love this, right? Like, especially in the era of COVID, who wouldn't rather sit at home watching Netflix in their jammies and get hooked up to the IV than having to go and sit in a waiting room and then sit in a fusion center at the hospital. Um, not every drug can be moved to the home setting, but oh, can. And in this case, she was a perfect candidate. And this is a patient who had been already in very well engaged in case management, working with a case management nurse from the plan administrator. And as soon as that case manager mentioned the possibility of moving to home infusion and was she interested, she stopped engaging in, in case management. And, you know, there, there are protocols that case managers follow. And, you know, it's one of those deals where it's like you get to three calls and they don't return. And it's like, well, we did three calls in a letter and we can't get her to respond. So there's really nothing we can do. And our team just kind of scratched their heads and said, well, this doesn't really make sense. This woman's been engaged for a long time in case management. Why all of a sudden would she not engage once we had this great opportunity? And so it is a kind of an interesting world we live in where people post a lot of information about themselves and even their health conditions on the internet. And of course, we would never go you know, below board and, and look for anything that's private. But when there's publicly available information, we can often use that to help us get a full picture of the person and what's going on in their life. And it turns out in this uh, particular situation, the patient was a hoarder. And we put two and two together and said, aha, 
they don't want somebody coming to their home. They're probably a bit embarrassed um, about their situation. And so we then went back to the CFO of the employer and said, well, what if we put her in a hotel once a month? And I think his exact quote was something like, you can put her in the Ritz-Carlton if it's going to save us $850,000 a year. Um, and so needless to say, that's what we did. We, we got home health set up in a hotel once a month. She had a wonderful weekend away um, once a month to just kind of chill and go to the spa and get her infusions. And the company saved over $800,000 a year. So we really consider that a win-win-win, better care, better satisfaction by the patient, and definitely dramatically lower costs. And a really great reminder that there are very real people who bring a lot of other um, history and, and needs and, you know, fears to their care scenario that might not be the thing that we would automatically think of as a barrier. You know, hats off to your team. One of the things that um, at least internally we have talked about some are the 2020 results that we have calculated to this point. And your team saved roughly $56 million across 307 cases in 2020. I mean, at first I thought, gosh, 56 million over 300. I mean, that's, that's huge. The average savings on that was just under 182,000 per case. That's phenomenal. Really phenomenal. Thank you. So can we talk a little bit more about, you know, why employers, I know we've touched on a couple of things here and there, but I really want to be sure that we very intentionally connect together why employers should care about complex claims and the rise of million dollar claims. And, you know, I don't want to assume that every employer is, you know, as engaged necessarily on some of these pieces or following some of their own utilization. Um, so I would just ask, you know, explain to us like you would explain to somebody who doesn't know self-funding at all. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, um, it's certainly once you venture into the world of self-funding and for anyone who's listening who perhaps is less familiar with that concept, um, certainly my background, of course, is on the provider side. So this was something I had to learn coming over to Lockton that, you know, so many employers, most employers over, say, 500, certainly over a thousand employees are going to bear their own risk um, for their health plan. And so even though the the patient's ID card may have United, Blue Cross, Cigna, uh, you know, some, some other insurance company on the label, um, they, the insurance company in that particular situation is not taking on the risk. Um, the risk is borne by the employer, and we call those administrative services only, meaning that the insurance company is, is just administering the claims and then also usually providing some case management and utilization management, some of those other services. Um, but the risk falls to the employer, and this is why you know a lot of our employers, certainly those that are under 20,000 or 10,000 lives, typically carry uh, reinsurance on their plan. So insurance that we call stop loss, meaning, you know, above a certain amount, whether it's 250,000 or 500,000 or 2 million, they have some kind of insurance that say, um, if they get the $24 million baby that one of our clients got, <laughs> which came in all in one bill, so you can imagine how anxiety provoking that was, um, that they know that, that at least they will have some assistance um, covering that. So that is definitely 
something that is sort of table stakes in our opinion. And, and frankly, we're seeing more large employers, so those that are the 20,000s and ups, starting to get at least some level of coverage um, reinsurance, e- even though historically they didn't. Um, and it's really a cash flow issue. If you step back and think about it, $24 million, if you got a bill tomorrow for $24 million, would you be pre- prepared to pay that out of your cash? Um, and that's where a lot of employers are saying, wow, well, you know, we, we, we need some level of coverage, but it's not enough. And the reason it's not enough. So if you look at the way that our insurance system is designed, it you know, there's a definite process efficiency play when there are in-network providers. And for most of the large insurance networks, um, the Blues, United, Cygnus, Aetna, the the big ones, um, they have benefits for the 95% or so of providers who are in-network. And that means that there are things like they have to pay the bill within a certain amount of time. Um, And in order to do that, and you think about how many millions of claims they're processing at any given time, they have to use technology to enable that. Um, and you know, for the lion's share of claims, it works great. Um, and there are, of course, some processes to, to double check things in the background. But when you're not looking into the detail of every claim, there can be some things that may slip through, um, unbeknownst to the administrator. So a couple of examples, we've had cases where there was a knee replacement for a quarter of a million dollars and it should cost 40, maybe 60, or 60,000. Um, and we're going, why is it $250,000? Well, once we were able to get the itemized bill, we figured out they'd use stem cells and put it in the OR charges. So the computer, when it sees that coming in, says, OR charges, that's an approved expense. I'll go ahead and, and pay the claim. But it was us, you know, sometimes it just takes a human to step back and say, um, hang on, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That's way too expensive for the OR charges. So, um, you know, another instance that we had a case where we were actually looking at a big inpatient claim and noticed that there on the back end, the patient had gotten quite a lot of outpatient nursing. And our nurse very astutely said, this looks like private duty nursing, which is, you know, more of a convenience care, if you will. Um, and that wasn't, she knew that wasn't covered in the patient's insurance. And so, but it was paid out as if it was home health care, which would have been a covered service. And so she started digging and worked hand in hand with the plan administrator. It took about six months to unravel the whole story, but it turns out that the local home health company had figured out that if they build using one set of codes that we call revenue codes, instead of using another set of codes called procedure codes, which is the more typical way to bill, that it would bypass the trigger in the system that was supposed to determine home health versus private duty nursing, meaning it was automatically approving everything that went through as home health uh, because it didn't rec- it wasn't finding the code it needed to tell it it was actually private duty nursing. Um, so we ended up getting a couple million dollars back for our client, but it turns out it was happening on the whole book of business too. So the insurance company was able to also save on their fully insured business. So a lot of great ways that just by, you know, picking off these really complex examples that we can go and dig in and try to medical private investigator style figure out why? It's a lot of asking why about a hundred times until we get either a, you know, a good explanation or we find something that we can fix. And a great way to partner with carriers and administrators as well. It would seem that they were probably very appreciative that some other folks had jumped in to investigate some of that. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when anytime we start a new relationship with an administrator, there are a lot of questions. Um, they typically will be like, why are you asking us so many questions? Nobody else has so many questions. And we always consider that a badge of honor because not that we're trying to create work for people, but because we believe that these questions need to be answered. Um, we work very hard to be as least intrusive as possible. And we understand that we rely on them a lot for some heavy lifting. And um, we're very appreciative of that. Um, but the relationship, once they see what we can do together, becomes very magical, especially when their clinical team and our clinical team connect. And that's where we see things like a case manager is working a case, and maybe we haven't even seen the claims yet. And they recognize the patient needs help and they'll call and say, can you get them into a center of excellence somewhere? Um, and we'll collaborate in that fashion. So there's a lot we can do once we, we kind of tear down those walls and build the relation, the working relationships. Yeah. And all of those details matter. So I would like to spend a few minutes here to talking about what are the effects of COVID? Uh, I know your, your team has, also worked across Lockton to do some things like being able to help clients sort of estimate what the impact is to them. But there are some broad things that you are working through here as well that I think would be really helpful for folks to hear. Absolutely. You know, of course, this continues to be on everyone's radar. Um, even as vaccines are rolled out, we're still trying to understand what does the future mean. It played out pretty much how we thought it likely would, which is, you know, certainly as a complex claims specialist um, dealing in the highest cost claimants, we see continue to see occasionally, but less so as more people are vaccinated, extraordinary claims for people who just have, you know, one of these inflammatory and clotting responses and end up in an ICU and on dialysis and on a ventilator. But those are the, the exception, actually. You know, most patients, and we saw this coming, um, you know, COVID, just the pathology of it means that most patients that are sick enough to be in the hospital will either get better within a week or so, or they will pass away. Um, and so we actually had, you know, not a tremendous number of these exceptionally costly claims. Um, that said, um, they can go very bad. And of course, that's when our team kicks in. Where we see a lot of the questions coming, um, one will be, what is the impact of the monoclonal antibody? So that's legal speak <laughs> for a medication. And now there's two out there um, that patients can receive when they still have mild disease and are not yet hospitalized. Um, and so we see a lot of, you know, people being able to avoid hospitalization going forward. We view that as very possible. And there's also been some progress in the area of how we treat patients in the hospital, figuring out, you know, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were kind of throwing the kitchen sink at there, we, trying to see what would stick. Um, and, and we've gotten a lot better as clinicians on understanding that. Um, the challenge that we see, the big tsunami coming that I think is going to, you know, we have to wait to be seen is how many patients put off care and are then going to come in with more severe disease. This is particularly concerning in the area of cancer. And in fact, I recently worked with a patient who is herself a physician um, and works for one of our clients. And she told me, you know, I had a recurrence of my cancer and I had had an operation right before COVID. I was scheduled to go in for a follow-up. I opted to do it by telemedicine because of COVID. 
And so they didn't draw my blood as they normally would have in a follow-up visit, but I had no symptoms. Everything was going great. And so everybody said, great. We think we cured it. And then sure enough, six months later, you know, here it was back and, and you just wonder, well, you know, how many of those patients are out there that maybe their lab work was deferred or, you know, they were like, I can live with this symptom for a little bit longer because I just don't want to go in, get in. And, and that's where I think we're all concerned that we may see some pretty big bills on and some really sad cases, frankly, yeah. on people who, if they had been diagnosed earlier, um, could have had a different outcome. Yeah. It's a really good reminder that those cancer screenings are still really important. Our providers are still there providing those services. And, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal to mask up and go have a mammogram or, you know, colon cancer screening or something like that. You also have mentioned, you know, increases in other care that are impactful, especially around behavioral health. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there? Yeah, absolutely. And people are sometimes surprised to hear this, that there has been a very substantial rise in mental health, behavioral health claims over the pandemic. I think everybody knows that we're all stressed. But the idea that someone who previously didn't have a diagnosed mental health condition could then develop one, um, a lot of people did not really appreciate. And we have definitely seen a rise in the use of uh, behavioral health services. Um, Just recently read one of the administrators reports that was put out by uh, Aetna, actually, that really did a nice job of going through just how much, and the the statistics were frankly pretty alarming um, in how many people are now self-identifying as having depressive or anxiety type symptoms, um, people that are feeling hopeless and, um, you know, also just needing additional assistance. And it's especially pronounced in the young adult population. And I think that's one that we don't talk about the impact of COVID a lot are in the teenagers and the young adults because everybody knows that you're at higher risk of bad outcomes if you're older, except when it comes to mental health. When they look at the mental health data, the people that are most impacted by the social isolation and and disconnectedness from their surroundings and their their friends and family are those in the you know teen to young adult ages, um, and we're seeing increases in suicide rates and um, increases in claims for mental health. And we think we're just scratching the surface. We think there's actually a lot of people out there who are struggling that aren't getting help yet. And I think we're just on the tip of the spear on that one too. That more of that is going to be coming. And and you know part of that will remain to be seen. It kind of depends on how fast we get back to quote normal and what does quote normal look like in the future. You know that will that will also be to be defined. Um, so that's something that we need to appreciate. And we are talking to a lot of employers now about let's make sure that you have good behavioral health services, EAP, whatever is needed to support your employees, their, their families, because this is an exceptionally trying time. And if it's another one of those things that if you let it go too long, obviously the results can be catastrophic. And, and there are, the, on the flip side, the good news is Telehealth, now that everyone knows how to use Zoom, (laughs) that telehealth has become very accessible. And it is one of the places that we've been saying for years, even pre-COVID, you know, there there was a lot of difficulty with access to mental health services. Now that we can actually 
pipe in to all kinds of communities. Um, there actually is more availability of mental health services. We just have to find the patients that need it and connect them and make sure those services are available to them. Yes. Those, those are sobering statistics. I have a teenager in my home too. And, you know, I can tell you the, uh, the effects of having, you know, isolation and no school and being at home for long stretches has been very different for her than it has been for me. And, you know, one of the things I've taken away from that too, is, you know, we do have great benefits and we have great access to um, telehealth and mental health services, which I think is so incredibly hopeful and, um, and optimistic when it comes to just the accessibility and the affordability. Um, But it's also just so important, you know, check on your neighbors, check on your people, you know, in your community. And it's really going to be up to all of us to take care of one another for sure. Okay. Yeah. And I think that this will also be a little bit of an inflection point too. We were already starting to see some of the more acceptance, you know, that we look back 10, 15 years ago, it was still pretty taboo um, to tell your friends and family and even employer that you had some kind of a mental health condition. And, you know, we now recognize that it's well more prevalent than we used to appreciate um, and I certainly didn't acknowledge. And so now that it's becoming, if there's, I always try to look for the silver linings in this pandemic situation. And I think one of them is now enough people have had these feelings and become aware of these feelings that there is a bit more acceptance um, to saying, hey, like, you know, I've had that problem too. Let me help you get connected with someone. Um, So I would say if there is anybody listening who is struggling, you are not alone. And there are a lot of people happy to talk to you about it. um, and, And we're all in this together. Absolutely. So last question, you know, section of, of our time together, let's talk about what makes Lockton's approach to complex claims different. It is really that patient by patient, gritty, never take no, <laughs> um, you know, get all the information. Uh, I may have mentioned earlier, but I always say we're one part medical private investigator and one part guerrilla warfare. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's what we do. And it's also taking the lens of we will not sacrifice quality. If anything, we are looking for ways to improve the care that patients are receiving. Um, I had a great example of a woman who was in the hospital nine times in one year. And the reason she was in the hospital really caught my attention. And this is one that one of the case managers from one of the uh, administrators brought to us. And I, and she's like, I just don't know what to do with this lady. And I was like, she's that anemic that she's ending up in the ER. And for those who aren't medical professionals out there, anemia is of course, low blood count, right? And a lot of people have mild anemia, but to have anemia worth being admitted in a hospital, you have to be dreadfully anemic. And she was having, she was so, her counts were so low. She had chest pain and was ending up in the ER and then getting admitted to the hospital basically every six weeks, Um, despite having multiple clinicians involved in her care for a variety of different conditions. And I was like, this lady can't go on like this. I mean, she's basically living in the hospital at this point. Um, And so we sent her, we got her into the Mayo Clinic down in Florida, who's been a great partner of ours. 
And they figured out that she was slowly leaking blood um, from these abnormal blood vessels in her bowels. And so basically she would get in the hospital and they would tank her up with blood and then send her home. And over the course of the next six weeks, she would just bleed out again um, until she was so bad that she ended up back in the hospital. Um, it was actually a very simple scope procedure. They didn't even have to cut her open um, to go fix that. And then while she was there, because they do a whole comprehensive evaluation, they were said, well, gee, you know, this medication you're on for your autoimmune condition that you have is very um, outdated and suboptimal. And there are things that are way more effective at controlling your symptoms at a fraction of the cost. So they um, tweaked her medication regimen. The company is now saving close to a million dollars a year in her care. But the best part of the case for me was that she sent a letter to her employer and to the health plan and said, thank you for giving me my life back. And you think about that and how much wasted money there is being spent in the system for suboptimal care. But it's because we can't treat these folks like everyone else, right? It, by the time you're this complicated and this expensive, you really need somebody to go in and look at all the aspects of your condition and to help walk you through, um, you know, even simple things. I've had patients call me on a Sunday morning and say, hey, I showed up at Mayo for that referral and they lost my hotel reservation at the hotel. I'm going to have to go home. I can't afford to put my deposit down. And I, I was like, do not leave. I will pay for your hotel and get myself paid back. Like we have worked this hard, but it's one, you know, one little thing like that can de derail a whole program. So it takes a big team um, and it takes a whole lot of customization and um, detailed looking. And I think that's why a lot of people haven't gone this route because it is very labor intensive. Certainly we use technology to try to hone in on those cases sooner. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of just digging um, and looking for the little nuggets in there um, and then just sticking with them. Sometimes it can take us over a year to get resolution, um, but we are like a dog with a bone and we, we won't let it go until it actually gets resolved. And I think that's what really makes it unique. Yeah. I mean, and I would say, yes, the determination and the collaboration, um, but an awful lot of heart that goes into it too, because if you're really going to do what is necessary to help a patient find, you know, the right care and the right treatment and jump through the hurdles and the obstacles that are there, you really have to care about people too. So that's, that's not right. Lose. And, and you know, that the part of my background that's not on my bio is I spent a year and a half on disability as a complex patient myself. And I went, oh, my gosh, if I'm a physician and a consultant to the leading academic institutions in the world and I can't get the right diagnosis and treatment, right? how is anyone supposed to manage their way through this system? And, you know, if I look at my team of nurses and uh, billing and coding experts and analysts, like, they have their stories too. And like you said, the, the common thread is we, we've been there and, you know, we each have our own stories, but we're all incredibly like passionate, like die on the sword to help other people get through this system. And it really does take that level of passion to stick with it. Yes, absolutely. This is not a simple healthcare system to navigate. And I mean, that is an understatement, of course, but takes a lot of experts and a lot of help. How does our stop loss practice tie in with the work that you and your team do? Great question. So, you know, really having good stop loss coverage is we would consider table stakes. You know, everybody has to have that. Um, and if not, you know, making sure that you have the best terms to protect you from those lightning strike, um, you know, liabilities is critical. Our 
practice is the largest of its type in the country. Um, we place over $1.2 billion in premium. Because of that, we have great established relationships with a number of stop-loss carriers. The other thing is that they've seen the results of the clinical side of this practice and the savings we're able to achieve and recognize that. And so we have close to 30 stop-loss carriers now, some of the biggest ones in the country, that will actually help to fund our work on behalf of our joint clients because they know that if our team is involved, they're going to have fewer claims and the claims they do get are likely to be lower. And so they're willing to help co-fund this uh, work for, for our clients um, and also gives us some some buying power in the market, not just, again, because of our scale, but because they recognize that the experience that they're going to have, the claims experience will be better because we're out there fighting on behalf of our mutual clients. So we have some really great partnerships, even have um, had inquiries by other health, like smaller health plans, regional health plans, and some stop loss carriers about could we do this um, for their whole book of business as well. So it's been a really nice, as these relationships grow, um, it's been nice to have them reach out and ask us those questions too. Yeah. And I want to be sure that it's clear too, when we say that these stop loss carriers are helping to fund the work that you and your team do, they are funding the work without a premium increase to our clients. So this isn't That's exactly an additional right. expense. This is a really smart way to leverage an expense that you already have to pay for a service that, you know, can we really function without it? Um, at least in a really productive, um, accountable way that spends the money well. And some of these things that the buying power of the stop loss practice can establish are things like early renewal lock-in. Um, are you seeing some examples of underwriting flexibility? Because, um, you know, when you say lasers, you know, that sends chills down my spine. But uh, what, <laughs> what, what kinds of things are you seeing? Yeah, it is. Um, it's a very collaborative relationship, again, that we're able to uh, build with these folks. And it does allow us to have deeper conversations when we do get the renewal quotes about why does it look the way it does? And, you know, is there anything that any information we can provide, you know, the, the stop loss carriers will often say, in fact, it was interesting at the start of COVID, I was getting calls from some of them because they were saying, we're always the last ones to know. I mean, like, they're <laughs> and so, you know, they were wanting to know what we were seeing. Um, and, and so we have a lot more insight into the data, particularly at a claimant level to be able to illuminate the situation and what's going on. And so that has been really helpful in terms of getting those rates. Um, reasonable, coming up with some solutions to these very, very expensive claimants and getting lasers reduced or taken away altogether. Um, and so we're able to weigh in in that fashion as well. It's not always about going and getting the savings. A lot of times it's just in getting the risk priced appropriately. And because we have so much more information available, we can take that and have a conversation and, and help the underwriters get more comfortable with what the expected cost is going to be. So I hear collaboration a lot. It's not just about trying to get a short-term rate lower. It's really about working together to come up with sustainable, reasonable, and then doing our best work to maintain that. Is that accurate? 
That's accurate. You know, and, and healthcare itself is complicated. These cases are exceptionally complicated. It takes a village, right? It takes the health plan administrator, the pharmacy benefit manager, the stop loss carrier. Sometimes we're working with patient navigators, on-site clinic staff, um, HR professionals. You know, we, we do a lot of collaborating because that's what it takes. It takes a village to surround these particular cases. That's right. And we certainly, as we expand our village in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we want to be able to highlight the ways that we can come alongside employers and help them. We can help an employer really tackle some of that nitty gritty and they don't have to figure out how to do it alone. And although we can't always predict for everything, we can certainly do our best to come up with plans for those what ifs and, you know, do our best to predict where the data allows us. And we have a lot of data. And as listeners today have heard, we also have a lot of heart and a lot of grit. So uh, we would- If I could leave folks with one, you know, thought, so many times when I'm meeting with employers, they've been told basically, sorry for your luck. Here's your $2 million claim. Uh, don't take that as an acceptable answer. Um, there are things that can be done, either whether it's already been paid or whether it's in process and unfolding or whether it's going to occur in the future. Um, there should no longer be this perspective that there's nothing that can be done. Um, there are a lot of things that can be done. And, you know, no matter where you find the assistance, get some assistance if you need it in digging into these things and make sure that you can get the data um, granular enough to really understand them um, so that you're not just having a blank checkbook that's writing out big, big, big checks. <laughs> I, I like that hopeful approach, too, of just helping employers to understand that, yes, just because this happened doesn't mean there isn't anything we can do. And so long, I think that has been a sort of a consistent story in healthcare, like, oh, well, too bad, but, you know, the past is the past, so we pay it and we move forward. Um, maybe that's not the best. Maybe we do have some better things that we can do, right? That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so if you are self-funded, if you are curious about self-funding and how that could look for your organization, the tools, the services, and the smarts that Lockton has within our walls has really been designed with that in mind. You can connect with me and we can help you to evaluate what that could look like for you, but we can also evaluate in your claims and with your data, where are the places that our team can make a difference for you and the spend that you have. I'd love to connect with you. I'm sure Dr. Hale would love to connect perhaps on LinkedIn. And of course, thank you for watching this episode of The Checkup. Take good care.